Mackerel Podcast number 66, special edition, January 12th, 2007. Sponsored by MYOB Small Business Management Software. Visit them at Macworld Expo booth 937 to see Account Edge 2007. Now Universal. I am your host, Macworld Senior Editor Chris Breen, welcoming you to the fourth of our Macworld Expo Special Edition podcast. We wrap up a frantic week of activity at San Francisco's Macworld Expo. As usual, it's been a busy, rewarding, and okay, exhausting week for everyone involved, but we're not quite done. Stay tuned for more of our coverage of the most important Apple event of the season. And now some audio highlights from today's sessions at the Macworld booth. Hello. Hi, this is the Macworld Podcast. I'm the host, Chris Breen. Have any of you listened to the Macworld Podcast before? Yes, a couple, a couple. Okay, more should because it's not bad. Um, today we're on the show floor at Macworld Expo. This is the last day of the show for those of you out there in listener land. And I think throughout the week we've done, uh, I don't know how many podcasts at this point, but the idea today I think is that I think we pretty well covered the iPhone. And I think we've pretty well covered a lot of the products that you see around the show floor. Um, there's a lot of cool stuff here to see, but the idea of this session is a little different, that I wanted to give you a look at some of the stuff that you don't see at the show floor, that some of the people that are here and some of the interesting things that are happening at Macworld that are behind the scenes that you won't see because somebody isn't here with a booth or somebody is talking about a subject that is maybe in the conference sessions that you're not seeing out here on the floor. So what I decided to do is, is bring people on stage that I like who do really interesting work. And with that in mind, I've invited two photographers to come up today, as well as a software developer who's, whose work I very much admire. So we're going to start with uh, Steve Simon, who is a um, documentary photojournalist. He's done three, three four. four books. And I'm going to have you speak oh, Yeah, Okay. He's done four books. Um, the latest Is this the latest one? Yeah, this is the latest book. Just tell them a little bit about your book. Uh, this is called Heroines and Heroes, Hope, HIV, and Africa. And uh, it's a book describing what's going on in Africa right now in terms of uh, the scourge of AIDS. And I, in this book, I wanted to not only uh, show the harsh reality, of course, that exists because of this, but also, also show the positive steps that are being taken and uh, the beauty of the landscape and the people as well, because I think often when we see imagery from in this this kind of subject matter, it, it's it's hard to look at. And though there are some images in here, and I can pass this through if you wanted to see it, that are difficult to to look at. Um, I also wanted to show you what I saw, and that is you know wonderful, beautiful people just like us in a very very difficult situation. Right, and you've also done. And when I met Steve, who's a, who's a friend of a friend, um, he offered this book to me because we were chatting in the speaker's lounge and just, you know, wonderful images. And then he said, oh, and there's this book, too, which I have seen before and paged through, Republicans. In a, and this was taken outside the last convention? Yeah, this was uh, a project that I did. I live in New York City, and uh, I'm very interested in American culture in terms of my photography. So... When the Republican convention was happening in New York, there was all kinds of amazing things going on. So I got accreditation, so I photographed inside Madison Square Garden, the protests outside, and I concentrated as well on the media because 
there were 15,000 media accredited for 4,000 delegates. And when I first heard that, I thought, that's got to be a mistake. But no, that's true. And um, anyway, it was, it was a, a really fun, interesting experience. Now, how did you get into this business? I got into it probably like a lot of people that get bitten by that shutter bug. I was just very, uh, when I was 12 years old, I, I got a camera. I don't know how exactly. And um, I used to go to the roof of the building that I lived in and photographed uh, sunsets and airplanes almost every day. I've never looked back. I'm actually more enthusiastic now about photography than I was as a kid. And it's, it's kind of a blessing. And I think many of us, you know, have found things that, passion, that we're passionate for. So certainly I'm, I'm passionate for the subjects that I cover, but, but it's the medium itself that has, has really kind of blessed me and uh, given me all kinds of great opportunities. Now, I know that at Macro Expo, increasingly people are talking a lot about digital photography because people are all shooting differently. Now, you start out with film, obviously. How has digital changed the way you work? Digital has reinvigorated me, I think, because really? with digital, as a, as a freelance photographer, every time I go out and do some shooting in, on the streets of New York, you know, it cost me $100 for film and processing. With digital, um, there's, no, there's no limitation. So you can take chances. And when you take chances, often you're, you're rewarded. So I feel somewhat reinvigorated. There's a couple of projects that I've done that uh, I never could have done without digital. The Republican's book was all digital, as was uh, the heroine's book. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's made things a lot easier for me to go out and, and get on the streets more as opposed to... Um, well, actually, there's a lot of computer time there, too. But uh, Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. I mean, this is a Mac convention after all, so what part does the Macintosh play in the work you do? Yeah, a huge part. I've been a Mac guy from the very beginning, and uh, now I'm embracing Aperture. I think the weak link in my digital uh, pursuit of photography has been uh, having an archiving system. I knew I kind of had to, and as I'm taking all these pictures... I kind of put them in folders that I try to label in a way that makes sense. But now with Aperture, I can, um, I can really catalog everything, and, and it allows me to do it, just about everything that I need to do with my photography. So I'm embracing it and hoping that I could spend more time shooting as opposed to being in front of the computer. Right, and as we, as we do this, I'm showing some of the images from your empty sky book. Which, and this, the history of that is... Yeah, there's, there's one interesting story that I tell about the, this book. And just to bring you back to a more serious time, uh, on September 11, 2001, I had moved to New York from Canada just a little bit before that, but I wasn't in New York at that time. And I was actually in Miami, and I was scheduled to come back on September 11th. I ended up getting back on the 17th and wasn't really sure how to kind of express my confusion and bewilderment like so many of us at that time. So the first thing I did, I photographed in color the, the wave of patriotism that was everywhere in New York and the rest of the country. And then I went down to the armory where those heart-wrenching missing posters were all posted, and I did a little photo essay. And I was kind of avoiding Ground Zero itself just because, well, I just didn't really want to go there. But when I accidentally was there and I saw the reactions of people to what was the ruins of what was left, I thought that, well, I'm going to maybe make a series of pictures of the people coming, this pilgrimage of people coming to Ground Zero. Uh, and that's what I did. So for three months, beginning the end of September to December, I made a series of pictures. 
And at the end of that time, I thought, well, I have something. I can do something with this. Maybe I'll get a book published. I would like to see this published because, as you can see, I'm really into books. So I made a little book dummy of my work, and I sent it out to a bunch of publishers and ended up getting a lot of rejection letters, right. which is normal, and you have to kind of you know, learn to take rejection. Some of them were nice rejection letters, but they were rejection letters. So I thought, well, maybe I can do something different to, to push this process along. And Susan Sontag lives in my or the late Susan Sontag lived in my building, and I thought if she were to agree to write a foreword, then maybe I would have a better shot at it. So I got Ralph the doorman to get a book dummy to Susan Sontag. Very next day, I got a call from her assistant. An assistant said, you know, she gets these things, so many of these things, she's not even going to look at it for six months. Let me save you time and send it back. And I said, well... I just want you to see it. I just want her to see it. Is there any way you can just show it to her? That's all I'm asking. He agreed that he would show it to her. Great. Continued to try and find a publisher. Nothing was going on. And then out of the blue, I get this call. I know time is ticking, but I get this call from this guy. He said, yeah, my name is Andy Levin. I'm a photographer in New York, and I'm looking at your stuff from ground zero. It's really good. And I'm going, who are you? He said, yeah, I just bought a book dummy of your work from a guy who was selling it on 7th Avenue for $4. I'm going like, what? Although I was secretly happy he paid $4 for it. <laughs> so he said, yeah. He goes on to say, yeah, uh, the guy who sold it to me said he got it from Susan Sontag's garbage. And I'm going, ah. So there's a happy ending here. Uh, Andy said, yeah, I have this friend at Life Magazine who's publishing this commemorative book. Can I show her this? And I said, yeah, go ahead. So to make a, a long story a little bit shorter, I ended up getting eight pages in this Life book that they had printed. I got my biggest paycheck since arriving in New York City, and with the credibility of being published in this life book, I was able to find a small publisher that published the book called Empty Sky. And I have to really thank, you know, Susan Sontag's garbage for it all. <laughs> and in the acknowledgments, I thanked, you know, Susan Sontag. I thanked, I thanked uh, uh, Andy Levin, everybody involved. And the guy who actually plucked it from the garbage I met, he lives in the building, and that's what he does. You know, people in New York throw out good stuff, and he collects it and sells it. Sells so, it on 7th Avenue. So the moral for me and for other photographers, I think, or anyone doing creative things is, you know, when you have a project, you've got to sort of stick with it, and you can never know where things are going to come, and don't kind of poo-poo any idea because you just never know how things will work out. That's a wonderful story. <laughs> thank well, you. thanks very much for coming on stage. All right. Thank you very much, Chris. Thanks. And now I'd like to ask Joseph O. Holmes to join me on stage. And, th again, those of you listening at home on the podcast, uh, in the enhanced version of the podcast, we're, uh, both Joe and Steve have been nice enough to allow us to use some of the images that, um, I can, yeah. that we're showing here on stage. All right. So this is Joe Holmes. Uh, or should I refer to you as your official Joseph O. Holmes, or can I just call you Joe? Do you know why I do that, why I have the middle initial? Why is that? Have you ever heard of another photographer named Joseph Holmes? Is a nature photographer ah. who precedes me and is right. really, really wonderful. So I have to, you know, distinguish myself. So if, if somebody had named you Liberace, you would have had to change your name. Liberace to... O. Holmes. Holmes. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, I've known Joe for a number of years. He's had more lives than a cat, I think. It's, originally, I met you when you were writing for Mac User Magazine. You were, That's right. You were writing power book uh, stuff, tips and, uh, and troubleshooting for them, as well as other articles. You were, you were doing screenwriting for a while after that, and then 
and then suddenly photography. So how did how did you stumble into the the world of photography? Or maybe let's back up and say what you're doing now. What am I doing now? What are you doing other than sitting here? I, I'm a fine art. I say I'm a fine art photographer. Right. So that means that I shoot and um, distribute, you know, at images for galleries and for people's homes and office walls and stuff, as opposed to photojournalism or you know some other form of right. photography. And I, I've just uh, been acquired by a gallery. I have a Manhattan gallery now. Just a couple months ago, the Jen Beckman Gallery now represents me in New York. So that's that part is going really well. Now, at what point did you stop being just a regular shooter who, who did stuff for, your, for yourself and kind of pushing your stuff and, and, and getting some attention on Flickr and that sort of thing to where you can really say, okay, I've crossed that line now and now I'm a, I'm a pro? You know, I, one of the things I started doing when I threw myself seriously into the whole photography thing is submitting my images to uh, a lot of the juried shows that galleries have. And now it's easy. You use the web and you submit digital images as opposed to the old days where it was all with slides right. you would mail in. So as soon as my images started to get into gallery shows, group shows around the country, and now I've had uh, eight or ten, to me that was a, a big leap. When I knew that I had uh, a series of images in Seattle in a gallery show and down in Carmel and Portland. To me, then I began to think that I could definitely call myself a real fine art photographer, not just, you know, another guy on Flickr. Right. And you are now part of the uh, the new Nikon campaign, so you're in the magazine ads, That's you're right, the on uh, the web page, you've got an own, on the Nikon site, you've got your own site, or a portion right. of the site devoted to, to what you do, uh -huh. which is great, and you were promoting the D80, right? That's right. Yeah, so how long did you actually shoot with the D80? Well, they gave me a D80 just before it was released for everyone. Actually, a month before you could actually buy it, but a, f a few days before it was announced right. by name. And they gave me a crew of about eight people for one day, like handlers and a guy with a laptop doing constant triple backups of my cards. We, so we spent a day. I had a model I could work with. I had, uh, I forget, there were like eight people in a van, and we spent a full day, like a 14-hour day, around Manhattan shooting stuff for that ad campaign. Right. And they actually, they did not tell me anything to shoot. They just said, Joe, we just want you to shoot. We want you to do your Joe Holmes thing. Right. And uh, that's what, whatever comes out, really great. That's what we want to use for this campaign. And the interesting thing here, too, is that, you know, I don't know how, you know, I haven't looked in your gear bag lately, but you tend to use kind of the, the stuff that, that regular people would use. You're not using the highest-end camera, the highest-end lenses right. in the world. I mean, so... That gives hope to sort of me and, and other people who think, well, well, do I really have to spend right. thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to take great images? That's a question I get. I often get a question when I show an image on my website. People will say, Joe, that's fabulous. What camera do you use and what lens? And I have taken to writing back and saying, you know what? Don't go out and spend a lot of money on a camera and say, you know, now I can shoot like Joe Holmes because I just use a D200. I use the same lens that thousands and thousands of people are using, and you're thinking in the wrong way, you know. This is not going to do it for you. Right. Well, so what is, you know, other than having talent, which I suppose you can't buy, what, what's good advice for those who are, who are interested in taking better fine art quality digital pictures. Well, I do teach a course at NYU, mm -hmm. so that's one place to go to get better. Uh, but on the other hand, what, one thing I tell people, you know, there's an awful lot of forum discussion and email going back and forth, and I say, you know what you really ought to do is you ought to get out of your chair and take your camera out 
and shoot with it every single day. Right. And one way that I found was an, a major motivator to, to do that was to have a daily photo blog. I've got a new picture up every day, five days a week, sometimes seven days a week. Right. And I'll tell you, that kind of a motivation turned me into a better photographer faster than any course, any book I could have read, almost anything, you know, any website. Getting up and shooting a picture that I had to put up tomorrow on the web. Right. Uh, you get a really creative when you have that kind of pressure behind you. Now, <clears throat> I know you're a Mac guy from, from way back, so do you read the manual for your camera? Uh, you know I love to read manuals. I read <laughs> all the manuals. It's kind of weird. Really? Yeah, even for Mac stuff. It's just like fun reading for me. So. Is it helpful, though? I mean, it, I mean, if you were to advise somebody who just gotten this camera that has umpteen number of features, would you say, oh, really God. start with a manual and, and go from there? It, you know, you can do an awful lot before you read the manual with these um, higher-end DSLRs, but they're so dense with features and so obscure, a lot of the features, you really have to do some reading. Although, for a camera like a Nikon, there's one guy named Tom Hogan. It's T-H-O-M-Hogan.com, who puts out manuals for the Nikon equipment who is just brilliant. And yeah, I've, got his, his I've stuff, got his DVD for the D70, and it was he incredibly is, helpful. So I actually, I don't, I don't recommend the, the, manual, the manual that comes with the camera so much as a really good guide to the camera. Right. And then you really, you really got to do that to get into the deeper features. Yeah, so, okay, so once you've sort of got your camera figured out, you've shot your images, you go back home, and, and how much trickery is involved with your editing process? So where do you... I mean, know, do I have to be a Photoshop expert to produce these kind of images? Uh, yes. No, you don't. Oh, no. oh, good. No, actually, it has really evolved for me. Uh, in the beginning, when I was relatively new to digital photography, I did a lot of stuff in Photoshop. These days, what I tell people is I shoot pictures as if Photoshop was never invented. The best picture I ever take is the one where I could take it out of the camera and print it, you know, huge. That's a big success. I barely crop anymore. I used to crop a ton. I hate to crop now. Losing a pixel to me is like losing one of my babies. Ew. And the same, you know, you do have to do a little um, tweaking of contrast because I shoot with the lowest contrast settings that I can. Mm -hmm. You do have to do a little tweaking. But other than that, I would really rather not start messing with a picture if I don't have to. Although sometimes I do a lot of messing around. It would right. be really fun. So the general advice is get the best camera you or best shot you possibly can in the camera so absolutely you're not going to have to crop later you want you want that image that you desire to fill the frame and i'm blowing up some images for a show in manhattan in two weeks uh that are 30 inches wide and they're very 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 detailed they have really fine details i'm shooting them on a tripod with a special mirror up mode that reduces vibration i'm getting every possible detail and pixel i can and if i start to crop those things Blowing them up to 30 inches is going to give me, you know, a worse result. Right. So I really, really don't. I want to get exactly what I want in the frame when I'm shooting. Right. Do That's pixels matter anymore? Pixel count on a camera matter? Or, or do we have enough now that unless you're printing at 30 inches? In general, I, I did an awful lot of really wonderful work, in my opinion, uh, with 6 megapixels. Yeah. And now I'm shooting with 10. If you really are going to blow up pictures, I've got one image in this gallery. It's going to be 44 inches high. You know, at that point, you really want a lot of megapixels. Why right. not? So what would you, if, if megapixels aren't sort of the deciding factor anymore, what would you look for in a camera for somebody who's a decent photographer and they want to kind of step up a little bit to a DSLR versus a point-and-shoot? I think the biggest step you can take is to get any DSLR. Once you move to a DSLR, you are way, way better off than the point-and-shoot cameras. And at that point, 
Uh, depending on how serious somebody is, I often recommend spend as little as possible on the DSLR, spend more on a good lens that you can use for a long time, and that's kind of fast. In other words, you're going to be able to shoot uh, in darker situations. That's what I mean by fast. Right. Uh, for instance, the, this Nikon D40, which is only $600 with a lens, it's going to be plenty for a whole lot of people. They're right. going to find it way much more fun to use than a point-and-shoot camera. Yeah. Well, yeah, I have start a, there. As, as I mentioned, I have a D70, and I remember emailing you because I was sort of in that, I want to spend money. I, you know, I had the money burning a hole in my pocket at this right. point, and I, I wrote to Joe, and I said, okay, should I get a D80? And, you know, instead of, well, yes, no, it's a great camera. He said, yeah, it's a great camera, but what lenses do you have? And that was very helpful to me because I have a macro lens. I have kind of the standard lens. Right. But I didn't have a wide-angle lens. If you have a really wide-angle lens, that can just change how you see whatever you're shooting. You know, that can change how you see the, the, the world. Yeah, so how much do you shoot wide and, and standard? And I'm a sucker for wide. I have a telephoto lens that I use for a lot of special purposes, but really I like to have the widest angle that is versatile for me. Right. So I like to have anything at the wide end between 10 and 17. Right. As, and as people will see for the images on the podcast and have seen here a little bit. Um, That's pretty wide. A lot of times you, uh, I see a lot of your pictures that you take in Times Square. That they're, they're candid pictures. Obviously, sometimes people look at the camera, other times not. And it appears that you're getting pretty close to them. Very. How do you uh, do you approach subjects beforehand and say, do you mind? I mean, it seems to me suddenly they pose. So how do you deal with getting these kind of candids? A lot of them are sneak shots. Uh, so nobody even knows that I'm shooting. And you're right that they are very close because when you're getting street, street photos of strangers and you're using a telephoto lens and shooting from across the street, you, you, the picture that results can look very distant, uninvolved, safe, and if you're using a wide-angle lens and you're getting up really close to people, and oftentimes you have to get really close and yeah. grabbing a shot, you can tell. You can feel, you know. It feels a little bit more immediate and a little bit, you know, startling to right. be really close to strangers like that. It comes across. So I shoot wide and close with strangers in Times Square. And you just sort of sneak. I mean, do you, like, put it on your hip and sneak, or are you actually right up there with a the camera in their face? It's, I got a hundred different methods, but if, if you're not shooting at eye level, you can tell. If you shoot literally from the hip... Right. Everybody says, oh, yeah, that guy's shooting from the hip, and it feels kind of cheap. So I try to shoot from up at eye level, even if I'm not holding it up to my eye, which is half the time I'm not. Yeah. And does it, have you ever encountered a situation where you, you shot somebody and they come up and say, hey, buddy, what? Only once. I was down in, uh, at the World Trade Center, Ground Zero, and there were souvenir sellers down there. And, of course, that's against the rules. So I was getting some shots of them, and... One day I decided I was going to try some flash shots, you know. But yeah. that's, that's a little bit more noticeable when the flash <laughs> goes off. So I took a picture of a guy selling souvenirs with my flash, and he followed me for two blocks. Why are you taking pictures of me, you know? What are you doing? He was, he was mad. Did you end up using the images? I don't think I did. I might have put it up on the web, but it was not a good picture, so. Right. So uh, you mentioned Photoshop. Apple now has Aperture out. Uh, have you been tempted to jump to, to Aperture? Have you tried it? I did try Aperture. I got lucky and found some kind of a, I guess it was in a, the college bookstore, so I got a cheap copy. Yeah. And it's still too slow for me, and that interface is really obscure. I have a hard time figuring out, even when I'm familiar with it, how to go back to what I was doing. But there are a lot of features that I'm completely addicted to. Right. So I use it half the time. I'm waiting for a faster copy or a way faster Mac. Right, right. 
Yeah, because I think I like it, though. people tend to, you know, there's definitely that Photoshop camp, you know, like I never will ever, ever use a different right. tool than this, whereas, the, and now Aperture's coming along, and, and I know the, the initial reviews came out, and people said, well, this is confusing, and I don't like the way they store images in this in this package. And the, But then for some people, they sort of turn around and go, oh, wait a minute, I, this is more photographic to me than drawing yeah. or something. Some of the stuff they came up with was brilliant. The idea of stacks. I shoot oftentimes on a tripod, I'll shoot seven or nine bracketed images so I get every exposure possible right. and then combine them sometimes. With stacks, you can stack them up so that all you see is one image and then when you browse through all your images, you just see one sample from all those bracketed exposures. makes it a lot easier to, to see a catalog of photos that way than looking at all nine of each shot you took. Okay. So those kind of things I miss if I don't use Aperture. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and because we have exactly 30 seconds, you get to give Joseph O. Holmes 30-second advice on how to shoot the best darn pictures in the entire world. <laughs> well, unfortunately, I don't know yet. I'm still trying to figure that out. But in general, I think everybody's got to discover that for themselves because I think the way I shoot pictures would be frustrating to a lot of people. So I think part of the process of taking an amazing photo is getting out and finding out, discovering your own photographer, the, you know, the photographer within yourself, and finding out how you like to shoot and what you find satisfying. Because right. nobody else can tell you that. True. And You've you got to get up and take the pictures. Yeah. You shoot, shoot, and shoot some more. The more you shoot, the more you're going to enjoy getting what you want. That's great. Well, thanks very much, Joe, for coming by. Thanks for having me, Chris. And now a word from our sponsor, MYOB. 1989, David Hasselhoff was dancing on the Berlin Wall, Michael Jordan was in search of his first title, and the brand new Macintosh SE had four megabytes of RAM. 1989 was also the year MYOB introduced their award-winning software for Mac's small businesses. 17 years later, MYOB is still empowering small business owners to manage their customers, vendors, inventory, payroll, and, of course, their accounting. To learn how MYOB can help your small business, visit myob-us.com. Attending Macworld Expo? Stop by booth number 937 and pay them a visit. MYOB. Mind your own business. Smarter. And now, to get away from photography, um, we have... Paul Kafasis from Rogue Amoeba. You are the CEO and, uh, and I believe your business card says Lackey. It does, CEO slash Lackey. Slash Lackey for Rogue Amoeba. And in case anybody here not know what Rogue Amoeba does, yeah, a few people have no idea. And there may be one or two people in the listening audience as well. So what does Rogue Amoeba do? Oh, I, I thought I was going to talk about digital photography. Okay. Uh, so well, Paul, I have a I... camera with five megapixels, <laughs> uh, I believe. Uh, no, Rogue Amoeba is an audio, uh, it's a software company, and we have software for lots of different audio uses. Uh, so recording audio, editing audio, uh, but it's consumer-level software. So it's software that maybe a couple people here are using. I know I talked to one person in the audience here. Uh, software for recording audio, anything playing on your computer, uh, you can record with a product we have called the Audio Hijack. And then you can edit that with a new product we have called Fission, and basically just different ways to manipulate audio. And one of the actually one of the reasons I invited you to, to this session, you know, for those who were sort of wondering what, you know, what's the thread that ties all this together, is that, at least in my mind, I think that software can be artistic as well, and that, that there's a very creative thing about creating really good software and making it 
work in a way that's easy to use and satisfies some very important needs. And I think, in general, Rogue Amoeba achieves that. You know, they, they make products that are, that are fun to use, that make sense, and do cool stuff. And, and on the cool stuff um, theme, you guys have sort of carved out a certain area that some other people are, are afraid to touch. And a lot of it has to do with, with repurposing media that you own and using other media and capturing media. And I mean, is there sort of a general philosophy other than let's make as much money as we possibly can <laughs> to what you design? Well, I think it's, it's something where we sort of fell into a niche. Uh, we sort of stumbled into it. Uh, our first product was called Audio Hijack, and it basically lets you record any audio. And going forward from there, we saw what people wanted to do with content uh, as far as we had people that wanted to broadcast audio. So putting out an Internet radio station, basically uh, broadcasting their own content. We have musicians and DJs who brought, put out a stream that anyone in the world can listen to. And so the way they do that is with some of the same technology uh, that we use for recording audio. And then from there, people came to us and said, uh, we need to be able to edit audio. We're recording this audio, and we want to be able to edit it. And so it's something that we sort of fell into, uh, where we just have a whole lot of people using audio. And it's nothing that we said, you know, let's, you know, originally we didn't say, you know, how can we make uh, audio work for everyone? But it's something that, you know, we've heard what people are trying to do with it and sort of tried to adapt our products or come up with new products that work for them. Now, one thing I've noticed is that every once in a while, you come out with something that addresses this need that you want, for example... I want to be able to, before iTunes was able to do it, I want to be able to stream my music across the house into to another area, and you came up with a, that a product that did just that. Well, Airfoil is a product that we have that works with Apple's Airport Express device, and iTunes was able to send iTunes audio out to that device, but what a lot of people wanted to do was send other audio, uh, content streaming on the web. If you've used Pandora or Last.fm or other stream sites, you can't send that audio out to your Airport Express. If you want to send audio from Real Player, Windows Media Player, QuickTime Player, basically any audio out to that device. And then uh, actually what we were able to do before Apple did it was uh, sending audio to multiple units. Right. Uh, last year here at Macworld, we demoed uh, Airfoil 2, which enabled you to send this audio to multiple units throughout your house. And about three days after we had released that, Apple added it to iTunes. Well, I'm sure they were working on it beforehand, but uh, it got released about three days after, after we did it. So yeah. we beat them to it, but it doesn't really matter. It's uh, academic <laughs> now. Well, so how much of that design process or, or just thinking of new products do you sit down with, like, the latest version of iTunes and say, oh, here are the five things that it doesn't do that I would like it to do. Let's build a product to make it do that? Or No, I mean, it's nothing. It's more when people come to us and say, I'm using an Airport Express device, but I want to play Pandora through it or I want to play, uh, you know, Real Player through it. And we sort of look at it and say, you know, when the Airport Express came out, it was about nine months before we had, I think it was about nine months before we had a product that worked with it. Uh, as we were waiting for feedback from people and then figuring, figuring out how we could work with the device. So it's nothing where we've pulled inspiration from one product or anything like that. Right. It's much more when users talk to us and say, we need to be able to do this or we want to be able to do this, and we say, okay, you know, let us think about that and figure out where we can fit that into our product line. Right. Now, you recently released Fission. It's, a, it's an audio editor. There are lots of audio editors out there. So what, what a need were you trying to address through this product? Well, there are a lot of audio editors out there, but there are a whole lot of high-end audio editors out there. Uh, so it's a lot of things that maybe are too difficult for people to use in terms of basic 
simple editing tasks. I think that was really the point of Fission was enabling people to do very simple tasks. So if you have a file that you've recorded with Audio Hijack Pro or recorded with anything and you need to split it up into multiple files or if you need to cut out some pieces of it, uh, we've talked to a lot of podcasters actually who use it to edit their podcast just to trim out pieces or to break it up into multiple podcasts, multiple, if they do multiple interviews, you could break this up into three different podcasts if you felt like it. Right. Uh, so it's, it's really designed to be sort of a much simpler tool. It doesn't do you know, a whole lot of the things that some of the high-end audio editors do, but it's designed to do a few things really well. Right. And I'll, I'll say, as, as, an, uh, as an older person, and, and Paul being a, those of you who can't see at home, uh, Paul is a younger person, uh, I have a huge LP library. I have lots and lots and lots of records, and I digitize these things. And if you've ever done this before, it's a pain in the neck to then go in with a standard traditional audio editor and slice and dice these things up into separate tracks. One of the things I really love about Fission is that it will take a, a long, so I can record one side of an LP, and I just tell it, I want you to auto-split this for me. Up comes a little dialog box with just two sliders, and it's looking for amplitude, and it's looking for silence. And you adjust these things, and it says, oh, okay, I know where the gaps are here. Bang, 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 bang. It's split for me. Once that's done, I can impose those splits and then open up a tagging editor, which is something I've been missing in other programs, mm -hmm. that I want to be able to tag that music, put in the, the titles of the tracks, put in where they are on the LP. Once I've done that, now it's perfect. You bring it into iTunes, and it's done. right? So this is sort of a, a nice solution for taking this old media cassettes or LPs even streaming media, if you have iTunes radio stations, for example, and you want to cut that stuff into separate tracks, Fission is a nice tool for doing exactly that. Yeah, what you're talking about is what we call the uh, Smart Split. Oh, sorry, Smart Split. Smart Split is a feature in Fission. And uh, what's really nice about it, it shows you a visual of the waveform of the entire audio file, and it'll show you where it's going to split the file. So if you know that there's six tracks on you know, one side of an LP, it'll show you, as you adjust the settings, it'll say it's found you know, 12 splits, so you need to scale back a little bit, and eventually you'll get to a point where you've got the exact splits that you need. Right. And yeah, so we've heard a lot of people using it for just that, for splitting up records and tapes, and uh, I think it's great for that. And also people are using it for ringtones as well, right? Yeah, that was something that we sort of promoted. Uh, I don't know you know, I don't know that we've seen a whole lot of usage to that, but I think it's something that could grow. Uh, if you've got a phone that can do MP3 or AAC ringtones, they want to sell you a ringtone for anywhere from three to five bucks. And the what you can do with Fission is just use the audio that you already own through the MP3s that you've purchased uh, on sites like eMusic or uh, the audio in iTunes. Right. Uh, if you record that again, you can uh, then edit those files and make uh, ringtones out of them instead of paying, like I said, about three to five bucks uh, through the networks. Right. Uh, and actually, a gentleman just came up from the audience, um, and this will be in the, in the podcast show notes. For those at home, you will understand exactly what we're talking about. But allow me to enunciate. The name of the product is Fission, F-I-S-S-I-O-N, and the company is Rogue Amoeba, and it's rogueamoeba.com, and you just jam all those together and off you go. Um, and he's a fan of Rogue Amoeba. Yes, he is. He's nodding. So, yes, I love those guys. Your 20 bucks is coming, sir. <laughs> so how much has podcasting, or the advent of podcasting, the popularity of it changed your business? Um, well, I was talking to you yesterday, and we were saying that uh, I'd seen you at the Podcast Expo in uh, 2005 right. uh, in uh, Ontario, California, which nobody's ever heard of. But uh, that's, where, that's where the convention is. Wait, we're huge in Ontario. Yeah. We yeah. love Ontario. 
<laughs> All the listeners in Ontario, I'm sorry. Uh, everyone thought I was in Canada, though, when I told them where I was going. So, uh, But so, yeah, it's, uh, the podcasting expo has been sort of a, something where we've seen some growth. Uh, we were there in 2005 in the first year, and then in 06 it was a, a bit, bit of a bigger event. Uh, as far as our own business model, uh, it was never something where we said, you know, podcasting is going to be huge, let's really focus on it. But it was something where we had a tool that podcasters saw that they could use. And they came to us, and again, uh, you know, this is sort of getting ideas from, from users and, and getting direction from users. Uh, they came to us and said, you know, we really need to be able to do this and this and this. And so we added a whole lot of, <clears throat> excuse me, a whole lot of features to Audio Hijack Pro that sort of helped them, and now I think Fission as well. Uh, so it's something where it's gotten a lot of people interested in recording their own audio, in creating their own content, which certainly helps with the products that we already have and, and helps sell them. But I think it's also that it's... Uh, made people more aware of audio in general. Right. So there's content out there that's not available as a podcast, that, but there's streamed content that content that then people use Audio Hijack Pro to record. And people are just, again, with the iPod and with podcasting, people are just more interested in audio in general now. Well, I think one of the high, uh, features worth highlighting within Audio Hijack is uh, its ability to, to record Skype. Yep. Because people who do podcasting, you can't get guests into your house you know, who are across the country. Instead, invariably, you don't want to do it over the phone because it sounds bad. So you end up using Skype, but Skype can be problematic because sometimes you can. it seems, oh, I can only record one side of this conversation. I need to record my voice as well. And what does Audio Hijack provide in that regard? Well, Skype doesn't actually itself have any recording functionality. Uh, so what people are doing is they're using this to talk to people all over the world. And, yeah, you can do an interview, and it sounds like somebody's right there with you. But the problem is you need to be able to record that. Uh, so about, shoot, about a year and a half ago, we added some functionality to bring in audio from Skype. Uh, and it was a little bit clunky, but it certainly worked for a lot of the podcasters out there. And then recently, I think about six months ago, we, we released a new version of Audio Hijack Pro that uh, allows you with basically one click, you just say, I need the audio from Skype. And it's smart enough to know that when you're recording from Skype, you're going to want both halves of the conversation. Right. So you get, you know, you're talking to the, to the person on the other end, you record your own audio and you record them. And it's basically like having two mics right where you are. Uh, so I think we've seen a whole lot of people being able to podcast because they can do interviews around the world without having to fly somebody in or, you know, do it over the phone and try and work that. Uh, so it's, it's definitely been, uh, that's been a boon for us as far as people trying to record Skype and iChat. Uh, it's definitely worked out well for us there. Yeah, now have you seen a, kind of an overall peak in, in, in interest in your products in the last few years? I, mean, I used to write audio reviews for, for Mac user and Mac world, and I would take this, and my editors go, what? What's audio? I mean, because nobody cared about it until the iPod sort of came along, and then marginally cared about it, but suddenly podcasting happened, and then... Yeah, within uh, podcasting, I'd say, has really taken off within about the past year, year and a half, yeah. uh, you know, where places like Macworld are doing podcasts. When it first started out, it was just, you know, a few guys who were chatting about whatever they felt like, uh, and now it's really being used as a tool where you can get content out to people, where all the people who aren't at Macworld right now can hear this interview and hear all the other stuff you've talked about. Right. Uh, so I think it's something that's yeah, it really has taken off, uh, and I'm not sure that you know we sort of saw that it would. It was just something where we had the ability to add a few features and, and make some people happy and and sort of help it along. But it wasn't anything where we made a big bet on it. Right. Uh, but it has worked out well for us there. Yeah. Now on a, a perhaps a touchy subject, but um, I th imagine that there may be somebody in the world who would say your tools are helping people pirate music. And what do you when someone says that? How, how do you respond? Well, <laughs> I mean, we, don't, we actually don't get this very much anymore. Uh, when Audio Hijack first came out, uh, basically it was pitched as a tool, it still is pitched as a tool to record any audio. And so there's 
basically the, the word is fair use. The words are fair use for, for what you're doing with that. Uh, and there are ways to use the tool illegally. But it's the same thing as having, you know, a baseball bat. You could, I could hit you over the head with a baseball bat, but that doesn't mean a baseball bat needs to be illegal. Right. Uh, so it's, it's just something where, you know, it's how you use the tool and how the tool is designed. And the tool itself is designed for fair use cases where you want to do what's called time shifting. Basically, in uh, 1984, there was a Supreme Court ruling that said that you could time shift content, uh, video content. And that's why we can all have VCRs and TiVos. Uh, and the same sort of things apply to what we're doing here. We're time-shifting audio and enabling people to listen to it at a, at a later time. Uh, so, that, I mean, there's, there's legal precedence here as far as, you know, why it really is legal. Uh, it's, as I said, it's not something that's come up nearly as much lately. It's something when we first came out, people said, oh, that seems a little, a little shadier, right. a little grayer. And we've sort of said, no, you know, it's perfectly legal. Here's the legal precedence. And, and over time, people have sort of come to accept it, I think. Right. Now, uh, I'm going to put you in the, the box of the small developer who's making big so you started your business how long ago? Uh, about four and a half years ago, a little over four years ago. And how many employees do you have now? We started with three co-founders. Uh, and we were, all, we were working full-time, but we had other jobs. We were uh, in school at the time. Uh, so there were three of us, and we were sort of part-time. Uh, and then we eventually went full-time. And in the past year and a half or two years, we've hired three additional people. Right. So there's six of us now. Right. So you, you start out with a shareware model and... It's not really shareware now. I mean, they're real commercial products, but you get them online. Right. So shareware is it's sort of something that I think of as sort of a dirty word. Uh, people have certain, uh, certain connotations. It has certain connotations for some people where it's maybe a lack of support or a lack of updates. And, and we try to be really professional about everything we've done from the get-go, really. Uh, but, yeah, it is a model where, you know, you're downloading the software online. You purchase it right online. And there's no physical product shipped to you or anything like that. Uh, so it is sort of the shareware model, but uh, we, we use the term independent software vendor, ISV, right. uh, just because we, you know, it's sort of, we are a professional company where, you know, as far as tax purposes and everything goes, it's a professional company and we do offer full support and, uh, you know, we get back to people. It's not something where it's a hobby for us. It's, it is a business. Yeah. So uh, not that I want to introduce more competition to your business, but if you're interested in another area of software development, how, do, how does the little guy get started? Well, no, I mean, that's something that we, uh, we sort of like to impart wisdom where we have it uh, on people. So it's always, uh, it's, it's always great to talk to developers here at Macworld and see, you know, how we can help people. Uh, I mean, how do you get started? Write, write some code, basically. I mean, uh, for us, it was we had a team in place. You know, we'd work together at other companies. But it was something where, you know, you need to start out sort of as a hobbyist. Mm -hmm. uh, you need to be interested in programming. You need to be interested in supporting your product. If you really want to be a full business, you need to be interested in all the aspects of it. Or you need to have enough people that somebody is interested in each, in each aspect of it. Right. So we have, uh, you know, we had two programmers when we started, and I was handling sort of everything else from uh, the website to documentation to some, some of the design issues. Uh, and it's something where, you know, we sort of all shared it, and we were all really interested in it. Uh, it's not something you can do. You can certainly do it as a hobby, but if you want it to become a business, you sort of need to focus on it as I, I do want this to be a business. I need to be serious about it and, right. and, uh, and sort of go forward from there. Okay, terrific. Well, uh, we are out of time, but thanks very much, Paul, for joining us. Thank uh, you, Chris. Macworld Live, and uh, thanks to all of you for joining us here at the stage. For more details on how to find the work of the two photographers as well as Paul, we will be posting this podcast in the next few days. You will find that information in our show notes along with complete links. And again, uh, thanks for tuning in. And that does it for this edition of the Macworld Podcast, sponsored by MYOB, Small Business Management Software. MYOB helps you to mind your own business smarter.
For more details on the items mentioned in today's podcast, please take a look at this program's show notes, available at www.macworld.com slash podcast. This is Chris Breen reminding you that you can find more Apple, Mac, iPod, and technology news, views, and information at macworld.com. Stay tuned for more of our coverage of Macworld Expo. See you next time.